right, let me pray. Lord, we love you. We're so very grateful uh, just for the privilege and uh, pleasure it is to worship you. Your grace is um, so amazing, Lord. And uh, I pray that as we open up your word now, that you would open up our minds to comprehend with all the saints the depth of that grace that was demonstrated in Christ. You demonstrated that love for us by sending him to die for us. So I pray, Lord, this morning that we would magnify you in the preaching of your word and the reading of your word. Reminded this morning from Colossians that um, I have become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the word of God fully known. Lord, I need your strength to do that this morning. I need your wisdom, need your power. And then, Lord, pray for the people who are here to hear your word, um, just as Colossians says, that they um, would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so we may walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of who you are. We pray that in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and have a seat. Let me kind of get situated here. It's good to see y'all in the front row, spit zone. Um, I am a little congested this morning, so my voice is a little bit deeper, a little bit manlier. I hear that there's some bad allergies down here. We're still adjusting, so it's happening. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 1. If you're new with us, if this is your first Sunday, let me kind of tell you a little bit about who we are. So my name's Andrew McClure. I'm one of the pastors here. And at CBC, one of our distinctives is we preach through books of the Bible, which means that we've chosen to start with the book of Acts. We feel like God's led us to the book of Acts, that we as a church can can together rediscover what the church is and what our role in the church ought to be. And um, the first couple Sundays, we've been in Acts chapter 1, and guess what? We're in Acts chapter 1 again, starting in verse 12. I promise we'll speed up through the book of Acts, but we'll be in Acts for a while. I don't know how long it'll take. We're not going to be in a hurry. We're just going to preach where we, where we left off last week. So we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 this morning. Let me uh, ask, ask you a question as we kind of set up this passage. How many of you have, have ever, at a point in your life, wondered what God's will for your life is? Have you ever come to a juncture of your life where you go, I wonder what God's will is. God, what do you want me to do with my life, right? I would, I would venture to guess that all of us at some point have asked that question, probably not in the minute details of everyday life, unless, you know, you really can't make decisions as to where to go to lunch and you really need God's insight. But when it comes to the major junctures of life, I think there's often times where we, where we ask, God, what do you want me to do? Like, what is your will for my life, Right? Should I marry him or her? Lord, what is your will for my life? You know, should, is it time for me to retire for many of our military families? Is it time for me to step away, move into civilian life? God, what do you want me to do? What is your will for my life? Should I take this promotion at work, which may require our family to make a move? That's a big decision, right? God, what is your will for my life? Maybe you heard our, our sermon last week, and we talked about the Great Commission, and you're going, God, you may be stirring me to be a missionary. What is your will? Do you want me to step into that? What's your will for my life? Right? On and on and on we could go. There's so many critical junctures in life where we, we really, out of a genuine desire to please God, like out of a genuine desire to follow him, we just want him to tell us what he wants us to do so that we can follow him. And in my experience, when we talk about God's will, if you don't know, that's where we're headed this morning. In my experience, when we talk about this, there's two temptations we face. One is to view God's will as like a tightrope, where we walk this tightrope with fear and anxiety, and we go, what if I make a mistake? What if I miss up? What if I choose something that God doesn't want me to do? Is that, can that be undone? You know, in God's wisdom and God's strength, can that be undone? The other temptation is the opposite end, right, of that pendulum, where 
instead of feeling this fear and anxiety, you just are kind of nonchalant and think, man, God doesn't care enough about the details of my life. He's given me wisdom. I'm just going to make whatever decision seems best to me, right? And we don't include him in that process. But what we're going to see today in our, in our passage, um, in Acts 1, 12 through 26, are some basic biblical principles that we can apply in order to discern God's will for our lives. Now, I'm going to be clear with you. This is not some kind of, like, uh, formula. Like, if, if you send in your best gift now, at the end of the day, when you go get a fortune cookie, you'll know exactly what God's wanting you to do. That's, that's not what I'm preaching. There's, not some, there's nothing that we can do to manipulate God into revealing what he wants us to do, okay? God revealing his will to us is not something we work or earn, okay? I want to be clear with that. So I'm not prescribing some formula for us. But at the same time, what we're going to see in Scripture are some basic biblical principles, time-tested principles, that if we apply them, it'll set us up to walk in the will of God. Okay? And we're going to see that in a very odd passage in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. So without further ado, I'm going to put the, uh, the Scriptures on the screen. Um, if, if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. I know you're probably tired of me saying this, but we want the Word of God in your hands. So as you leave today, there's, there's a table, I think, to the left. Grab a Bible. Take one home with you. It's, it's yours, a gift from us. So Acts chapter 1, verse 12, and I'll, I'll make sure my clicker's working. All right. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Wow! Right? Can we just pause for a second? Some things in the Bible, okay? But Luke, who the author, was a doctor, and obviously totally desensitized to gross stuff, okay? Let's pick back up, though, in verse 19. And it became known to all the inhabitants in Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So some of the men who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. All right, interesting passage, right, for us to talk about God's will. But we have to remember the context. Remember, the book of Acts, verse 1, was written about all that Jesus continues to do and to teach, right? It's about what Jesus is doing through his church, that this is a, a movement. Okay? A movement of people who are empowered by his spirit to live on mission for God. But what's really remarkable about this, this period of time in the book of Acts is that the first three years of these apostles' time with Jesus, they discerned and knew the will of God by simply doing what? Just following Jesus. Following the physical body of Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, they went. Wherever he ate, they ate. Wherever he slept, they slept. 
So for their, their ability to know what God's will was, is just totally dictated by following a person, right? But as we looked at last week, Jesus has now ascended. He's in heaven. He's, he's gone. But what they don't do is start beating their head against some proverbial wall going, God, what do you want us to do? You know, what do you want, what's your will for my life? They're not doing that. What do they do? They just obey what Jesus told them to do. This is the first principle. How do we discern the will of God? They simply obeyed what they knew to be true. We need to obey what we know to be true. Look with me in verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. This is a direct obedience to what Jesus had already commanded them. Before he ascended, he told them. This is two accounts in Luke and in Acts. He says, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay. Stick around. Be in Jerusalem. We see it in Acts 1-4. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, which, you, which he said you heard from me. Apparently, as Jesus is appearing and disappearing and reappearing during this 40-day period of proving his resurrection, the disciples were doing something similar. They were coming in and out of Jerusalem. And in fact, the Gospel of Matthew says at one point they're at the Sea of Galilee, which is really far north of Jerusalem, fishing. So they've been coming and going out of the city, and Jesus says, no longer. Stick around. Stay. Do not depart from Jerusalem. I want you to stay in the city. And what happens? They just obey. As soon as Jesus ascends, they obey what they knew to be true. They stuck around and stayed in Jerusalem. Here's the point for us. Our willingness to obey every command of God is instrumental in us, our ability to discern his will. We have to be willing to obey what he's asked us to do. But if you're like me, you may be going, well, how do I know what he's asked me? Like, how do I know what he has asked me to do? Because for them, it was simple, right? Jesus, in front of them, while he's eating, says, stick around. They knew. It was pretty clear to them. But for us, it may not be as clear. How do we know what God's asked us to do? That brings us to this massive topic of the will of God. What is the will of God? Anytime you read scripture from, from cover to cover, you see the whole counsel of God, or anytime you study any type of systematic theology based, uh, about the will of God, you're going to learn two things. There are two categories of the will of God. Okay? The first is his hidden or his secret will. What we know from scripture and what we know from life is that nothing happens apart from his will. He is in charge of all things. Paul writes this in Ephesians 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things happen because of God's will. But here's the, here's the reality. He chooses not to reveal some of that to us, right? Some things he keeps to himself. We saw that in the book of Acts. The apostles asked Jesus before he ascends, hey, is it at this time you're going to restore the nation of Israel? And what did Jesus tell them? Hey, that's not for you to know. You don't need to know these times or these seasons. Instead, you need to focus on something else. So he hid something from them, okay? Did not disclose. That's God's hidden and secret will. Here's the point if, if we really want to know the will of God. We've, we've got to stop putting so much of our energy and attention onto what he has chosen to hide and instead redirect that energy and that attention to what he has chosen to reveal, Okay? And I'm going to talk about that. So we have the hidden and the secret will of God, but the will of God also has the second category, which is his revealed will. What has he revealed to us? This is what he has made plain in Scripture. It's his commandments, his decrees, his precepts. Here's a verse that, that talks about the will of God in both of those, those components. Deuteronomy 29, 29. He says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us and to our children forever, that we may do 
all the words of the law. The secret things, the hidden will of God, that belongs to the Lord. But the things he has chosen to reveal in Scripture that belongs to us, that we may obey it. So he's revealed certain things. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but we know we're commanded to love our neighbors, to control our tongues, to act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, not to murder, steal, lie, cheat, gossip, fill in the blank. There are so many things that God has chosen to reveal to us. So instead of us focusing on what is hidden, maybe we should start focusing on what he has revealed. Right? We're so desperate sometimes when we come to these junctures, these critical decisions, begging God to reveal his will. But are we coming to him to reveal that will while ignoring right, what he's already revealed to us? We've got to start obeying what we know to be true. But they didn't stop there. Okay? The apostles obeyed what Jesus had commanded them, and then they devoted themselves to prayer. We find them devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 13, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. As they obeyed Christ's command to, to stay in Jerusalem, they, they were waiting. They had to wait. That was the command, to wait. But how did they spend that waiting? It wasn't passive, right? Waiting is not passive. They didn't order a Thomas Kincaid puzzle, you know, off of Amazon and sit there and, and go, well, we just got to wait, you know? How do we spend this time? We got to buy some time here. No, they were active. They were active in their waiting. In their waiting, they pray. That, that phrase, devoting themselves to prayer, implies this earnestness, that there's an earnestness to our prayer. So when we devote ourselves to prayer, as we seek the will of God, we need to pray earnestly. I can't help but to think that as they're gathered together, they're devoting themselves to prayer, they're not thinking about what Jesus had taught them on prayer, right? Jesus gave them a lot of teachings on prayer, specifically in Luke 11 is a great example for us. Jesus, we, we know this verse, right? Ask and you it will be given to you, seek, you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. But he concludes this teaching on prayer in verse 13 by saying this statement. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's really interesting. Because he told them, stay in Jerusalem because I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And as they're waiting, they're earnestly praying for what? Man, the Holy Spirit. They're thinking about what Jesus had taught them, but they're also thinking about what he had modeled. What did they see in the life of Jesus on the day of his baptism? Look with me in Luke 3. When he was baptized, when Jesus was baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. The Holy Spirit came to Jesus as he was praying. Now let me be clear. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not dependent upon you or upon your work or upon how much you pray, how much time you spend in prayer, what time of the day you're spending in prayer. It's a gift. We looked at that last week. It's a gift from God. But that does not negate the fact we are commanded to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit. Okay? And that's what they're doing. They're devoting themselves to prayer, earnestly praying for the Holy Spirit. If I pulled the room right now and asked how many of you believe prayer to be an important spiritual discipline in the Christian faith, I think all of us would probably say, yeah. But if we were honest with ourselves and really assessed our own lives, I think many of us would admit prayer's a struggle, right? We struggle in prayer. Why? Like, why do we struggle in prayer? Although we need to be praying earnestly, why do we struggle? I mean, there's a myriad of answers, I bet, to that question. But let me give us two that I think are really pertinent to us today. In, 20, in 2022, in the southeast part of America, I think these are two reasons that we struggle to pray. The first is, I think we depend too much on self. Prayer as a spiritual discipline 
demonstrates that we are dependent on God, not on ourselves, right? We like to get things done. I'm, I'm a type A, really driven person. If I don't feel like I've accomplished anything at night, I will find things to make messes of and then clean them in order to go to bed feeling like I accomplished something, right? We, we, that's who we are as a culture. We've got to feel like we've accomplished something. And when you spend five minutes in prayer, 15 minutes in prayer, how, how long is it until you go, there's probably other things I could get done right now? Right? We depend so much on self. We, we think we've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and climb this mountain called prayer. But Paul Miller, author of A Praying Life, which is a, a book I recommend on prayer, he writes this, prayer is not a mountain to climb. In fact, it's really more of a valley we fall into. Prayer comes naturally to those who realize how weak they are. Let me say that again. Prayer comes naturally to those who realize how weak they are. Y'all, the apostles, the, the group of people gathered in this upper room praying, they knew how weak they were. You know why I can say that? Because they had just denied Jesus. They had just deserted Jesus. They had just doubted Jesus. They knew how weak they were in their own strength. Growing in prayer is growing in our awareness and our acceptance of our own weaknesses, especially in light of his limitless power and strength. So I think we struggle in prayer because we, we depend on self, and I've got to speed up a little bit. We, we got a few more points to get through. Secondly, I think we struggle in prayer because I think we're just too busy. Like, just practically speaking, prayer takes time. Like, you have to set aside some time to pray. And again, in our culture, we wear our busyness like a badge of honor. How are you? What's the answer to that question? Well, I'm busy. You know? And we say it kind of self-loathingly, but really underneath the surface, I think there's this like, deep desire to feel value, valuable. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm important, you know? I'm important because I'm so busy, and we wear that like a badge of honor. But the disciples in this, in this context, in this scripture, they weren't too busy. They, they were spending their waiting in prayer. And that blows my mind because what was the task that Jesus had just given them? You know, nothing other than to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, right? Before Boeing, you know, before Gulfstream. These guys were to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. If we were given that task in that moment, how would we respond? We'd, we'd throw it up on the whiteboard, we'd delegate, we'd execute, and we'd activate. We would get this thing done. But that's not how they spent that time. Even though they were given a task like that, their first step was prayer, to wait and to pray. Y'all, we hate waiting. As a society, we hate waiting. And if you don't think that that's you, I've seen you. I've seen you. I've seen you at the grocery store. You try to find the line that's the shortest. You go to the 10 items or less, you start counting the items in the basket in front of you, right? Just to make sure they're holding you up for a reason. I've seen that. You go to the red light right there at Timber Trail, and you, and you, you shift lanes really quickly so you can get a little bit ahead so that you can what? You know, drag race the Honda Odyssey, you know, next to you. We're in such a hurry. We pay for Prime and get frustrated when it takes 24 hours to get to our house. We have microwaves that cook meals in three minutes, and we get frustrated because it takes so long. We, we struggle, right, as a culture, as a society, with waiting. But prayer takes waiting. Prayer takes time. I think one of the hardest parts about waiting, and I'll say this quickly, is having to wait for an indefinite amount of time. Isn't that hard? When you don't know how long you're required to wait. But that's what the disciples were going through right now. Jesus had told them in Acts 1-5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, what do you say, not many days from now. And if I was in the room, I'd be like, clarifying question. <laughs> One, you know, two, like what are we talking, five? And what we know looking back is they had to wait 10 days. They had to wait 10 days from the time Jesus ascended from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. But they didn't know that. 
And they spent that indefinite amount of time in prayer, praying. They were praying earnestly, but they were also praying in unity. Verse 4, in one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and the Mary and mother of Jesus and his brothers. There's about 120, and I wish I had a lot of time to go into this. But this is remarkable to me because, y'all, this is a hodgepodge group of people. Like, if you look at who was listed there, you got fishermen, children of nobles, you have a prostitute, some tax collectors, a Jewish radical nationalist, not to mention, you know, the mother of Jesus is there. Hodgepodge group of people, but they're praying in unity. How? Like, how can someone be so unified with such a diverse group of people? This is your Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus unifies. Galatians 3 tells us there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. There's a unity that Christ brings. They can pray in unity. But there was also a unity of purpose. They were praying in one accord, which means of one mind. They were praying for the same thing. I have to think it was it's for the empowerment of the mission that God had just given them. They viewed themselves as being on the same team. You know, it's hard to pray with people, your spouse, your family, people within your church, when, when you're not viewing yourself as being on the same team, right? When you view yourself as being opposed or in conflict with one another. And you all, the church is, church is the same as any interpersonal relationship. There's conflict, right? I mean, how many of you know that experientially? There's conflict. You get hurt and you get wounded in church, but it's really hard to walk through that without praying. If you start praying for that person, you begin to see them as being on your same team. I, I love when we, we have conflict in the church. I, I, I say that sarcastically. I don't love. I love when we have conflict, conflict in the church, and then we start thinking, man, my church is the worst. I wish we could go back to the church of Acts. Like, couldn't we go back to this experience? Look how much unity they're praying with. And then I go, that's Acts 1. In a couple months, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5. You want to know what happens? A man and a woman lie to God and to the church. The pastor curses them. They drop dead. That's what you want? You know, I don't know what our insurance would say if that happened, you know, at city center doors. But there's going to be conflict rife within the early church. Conflict exists everywhere. But one of the ways to push through that and to be on the same side is to pray together. Praying together. It's hard to be in conflict when you're praying together. So, Obey what you know to be true. And I know I took some time here on prayer, but pray earnestly. Pray in unity. But look, look, let's look what else they did to discern the will of God. They studied the scripture. Scripture was primary in this life. And we see that in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then he goes on to list two scriptures. He references two. One from Psalm 69, one from Psalm 109. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. The evidence for replacing Judas was found in Scripture. They discerned what they were to do in that moment by studying the Scriptures. God's revealed will is found in Scripture. If we want to know what God's asking us to do, we too have to be students of Scripture. But we have to remember, y'all, Scripture is not like uh, some magic talisman. It's, it's not a magic eight ball. We have to learn to study and read Scripture appropriately if we're going to interpret God's will. You may have heard this story of a man who really wanted to know God's will for his life. So he opened up his Bible randomly, threw his finger down, turned to Matthew 27, 5, and read, Judas went away and hanged himself. You know, he closed it because he didn't like that answer, flipped it open again, randomly threw his finger down, and this time he came to Luke 10, 37, go and do likewise. Yeah. Cl closes it, 
flips it open again, John 13, 27. What you're going to do, do quickly. You know? <laughs> and we say that, that jokingly, but like how far from the truth is that in our ability to approach Scripture? Do we approach Scripture that way? Are we ready to learn how to read Scripture? Because what we see from Peter here is two things. First, Peter had a right view of Scripture. Now, this is, this is not exhaustive, but, but we see in Peter's quote, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. What, what Peter knew and what we need to know as we approach the Scripture is that although penned by the personalities of men, it was ultimately written by who? The Holy Spirit. Paul would say that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Peter would say, no prophecy has ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried on by the Holy Spirit. Possessing a right view of Scripture is believing that God wrote this book. And if we want to know his will, we've got to be students of it and possess a right view of it. But secondly, we see that, that Peter studied in context. He didn't just pull out random verses to support his claims, which we can all be tempted to do. Right? He studied it in context. He utilized the entirety of Scripture from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament to see that the warrant of replacing Judas was found in the Scriptures. Now, we, we reference Psalm here in a second, but I want to say this too. The apostles would have known the significance of 12 because they knew the significance of 12 in the Old Testament. When Jesus called and selected 12 disciples and appointed 12 apostles, he did it with an eye to the significance of the 12 tribes of Israel which descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. Revelation says there would be 12 stars that would make up the church's crown, and Jesus himself taught in Luke 22 that these 12 apostles would have thrones where they would judge people at the end of the age. There was this significance of 12. So when Judas you know, betrayed Jesus and, and subsequently committed suicide, there was a vacancy. Peter would have known, in light of the Old Testament, his position needs to be filled. But he also saw that there were scriptures that led him there. If you read that, you're like, how on earth? Read Psalm 69, you're like, how on earth would Peter have known this was a reference to Jesus? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus referenced Psalm 69 when he talked about himself. Five times Psalm 69 was used in the New Testament, twice by Jesus, twice by Paul, and then once here by Peter. They had just had their minds open to scriptures, what we talked about on August 7th. They understood the significance of the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, foreshadowing Jesus. Peter would have known that in context. So when we study the scripture, we have to study it in context, and we have to have a right view of scriptures. And I'm going to say it one more time as we close out this point. There is no surer way for us to know the will of God than to cultivate a knowledge of who he is and what he wants through the study of scripture. Get it into your head. Get it into your heart. It will change your life. All right, next point. They studied the scripture, but they also belonged to the church community. They were belonging. Church, God speaks through his people. He does. Now, that's terrifying, okay? Because I don't know some of you, and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know what you're going to say, but God speaks through his people, not in contradiction to his word, which is why we have to be students of the scripture, like the people in Berea in Acts, what is that, 17, where they're studying the scriptures to see if what was said by Paul was true. That's us. We need to be students of this so that when someone in the church comes and talks to you, we can, we can filter that through the scripture, but God still speaks through his people. What we see in this, this upper room moment was it, it's not an individually driven event by Peter. Peter's not like, hey, y'all, I'm the spokesperson, I'm the leader here, everybody shut up, let me tell you what to do, right? That's not my role as a pastor. We're all to be students of the scripture, and we're all to be mutually submitted to one another. Verse 14, these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, Mary, mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, 
And the company was about 120 in all. They were the church. Okay? And that number 120 is so significant. I wish I could dive a little bit deeper into this, but I'm running out of time. That 120 is significant. In Jewish law, for you to have a newly formed community with your own ruling body in the Sanhedrin, you had to have a minimum of 120 people. For Luke to put that in there, he's saying a new community is being formed here. A new church is being formed here. But who were they? Who were those communities? We have the 11, which is the 12 minus Judas. We have the women. Many believe that would be the wives of the apostles that were married, as well as the plethora of women that served Jesus in his earthly ministry. Right? We have Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Mary the mother of Jesus, all the Marys. Okay? All the Marys who had been following Jesus are there in the upper room gathered together. But what we also see is his brothers and sisters are there too. His half-brothers and sisters. Mark 6 says he has four brothers. But what's remarkable about this is what was his brother's response to his earthly ministry? They didn't like him. They thought he was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. John tells us that his brothers and sisters would not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. What changed? Now we have his ascension, and we have them gathered together, praying in unity for his spirit to be given. What changed? It's what we looked at on August 7th and August 14th, the proof of the resurrection. Paul says that Jesus appeared to James, to his brother. That changed everything for James. We know from church history that James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. James wrote the, the letter, James. And when he was martyred, his brother Jude stepped up and led the um, Jerusalem church. So, remarkable, remarkable what the resurrection did to these group of people, but they were gathered together. Y'all, we can discern and discover God's will as we belong to the church. That's that's why we need the church, because the, the truth is we can convince ourselves sometimes that our will is God's will, right? But when we start processing that with someone up and open ourselves up to someone questioning, challenging, praying with us, it gives us some accountability. So we need, we need to be mutually submitted to the church. And what's really significant, I'll, I'll close this point with this, what's really significant is notice, notice who proposed the two to replace Judas. It, it wasn't Peter. Acts 1.23, they... They put forward to the church, collectively put forward these two to, to replace Judas. Okay? So we need to obey what we know to be true. We need to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to be students of the scripture. We need to belong to the church community. And finally, we need to yield our own will. We have to surrender our own will. They put forward two, and then they pray in verse 24. Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And then Lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11. Now, you want me to jump straight to lots. Okay, I get it. We'll talk about lots here in a second. But I want to call our attention to their prayer first. They said, Lord, you know the hearts of all people. They recognized we don't. Our scope is limited, and our will can be deceived by our own passions and ambitions. Right? James tells us this. James warns in James chapter 4 that we can, we can have selfish ambition hidden in our hearts and that when we pray for some things, we may not receive them because we want to spend them on our own passions. We can convince ourselves that what we want is actually God's wants, right? I, I can. You can. We can all do this because we, we can't judge our own hearts. Like a doctor who would be in malpractice to diagnose himself, we too can be in malpractice when we can think and convince ourselves that our will is God's will. Another reason we need the church. Another reason we need people speaking into them. 
But we have to yield our will. And that's what they did in this prayer. They said, Lord, you know hearts. We don't. We want what you want. You show us who you have chosen. And how did they, how did they know who God wanted? The casting of lots. Okay? So what is, what is lots? Before we condemn these 120 for some Harry Potter-esque witchcraft, we, we need to understand that lots was actually sanctioned in Scripture by God. We see it throughout the Old Testament. They cast lots to discern um, the, the land allotments in the book of Numbers. We see lots being used to um, choose which goat uh, would be a scapegoat in the book of Leviticus. We see lots being used in the New Testament when John the Baptist's dad was chosen by lot to burn incense into the temple. And then the last time we see lots used is here, when they're replacing Judas. But I think a verse that would be really helpful for us in knowing what lots are is Proverbs 16.33. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Okay? So what are lots? Uh, lots are believed to be marked stones, probably placed into a jar, shaken up, thrown out, kind of like dice. Drawing straws, flipping a coin. We would think that that is magic or just leaving things to probability, but that's not what they believed, and that's the point. What they believed is that the lots were cast into the lap, but every decision the lot made was of the Lord. So their faith wasn't in some talisman or magic eight ball or flipping of a coin. Their faith and their trust was in the lot. So they yielded their will so that they could trust God's will would be known. So why can't we use lots anymore? Right? Why, why is this the last time we see this? Wouldn't that be a little bit easier? Like, you're thinking it. Just be honest. So if we just flip a coin, we can know what God wants us to do. That'd be so much easier. But truth is, I think we do sometimes do this. We look into things so much that we miss what God may actually be saying. There's like a, a story of a young guy on a college campus. He's walking down campus. He's just praying earnestly, God, who do you want me to marry? You know, who do you want me to he's kicking a He's kicking a Sprite can, going, God, who do you want me to marry? And he looks up and he sees this beautiful woman drinking Sprite. You know? And he thinks that that may be God's will because he's, he's living by lots, right? What if she was drinking a Coke, you know? What, what would he have made that? It's almost like we believe God's will to be dependent on who would litter, you know, a certain day. And we, we act like that sometimes. We want there to be lots. We want there to be some clarity when we flip this coin, but we don't have lots anymore. Why? Because as we're going to look at next week, this was a unique period of time in the, in the life of the apostles. They had followed the physical presence of Jesus for three years. Jesus appears for 40 days, proving the reality of his resurrection, and then he ascends. And then 10 days later, he gives what? The Holy Spirit. So our ability to follow the will of God is now discerned by us being led by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start looking at that next week. But the point is not the lots. The point is they were yielded to what God wanted. They had yielded their will in order to see God's will. There's an old evangelist in the 1800s and director of, of, of a large network of orphanages by the name of George Mueller. Have you ever heard of George Mueller? He's a spiritual hero to me and um, wrote a book, wrote his own, own biography, the autobiography of George Mueller. I encourage you to read it. But he was really known for, her, for answered prayer. He never made any of his needs known physically to others. He would only make them known to God in prayer. So he wrote in his autobiography, um, like, seven steps to ascertain the will of God. That's the name of the chapter. How to ascertain the will of God. How do we know the will of God? This was first step for George Mueller. He said this, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in, in regard to any given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready 
to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what that will is. That's hard work, y'all. To surrender to such a point to say, God, I really don't have a will of my own. Keep testing my heart. You know my heart, but I just want what you want. That's when God begins to make his will clear. So let me conclude for us. As we continue to move through the book of Acts, especially beginning next week with the day of Pentecost, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit guides, leads, and illuminates God's will for his people. Some of those are going to be in supernatural ways, dreams, visions, signs, miracles. Some are going to be in total natural ways. Like at the Jerusalem Council, they made a huge decision by saying this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Seem good. We're just going to use the faculty of wisdom that we have. We're going to see the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to discern that and help us lead into the will of God. But what we see here before the Holy Spirit comes, again, are some biblical, time-tested principles that if we can apply, we will um, be aided in our discovery of that will. So obey what you know to be true. Devote yourselves to prayer. Study the scriptures. Belong to the church and ultimately yield to his will. So let me pray for us and then our, our team's going to come up and lead us in a song and then today, we're, we're actually going to worship the Lord in the partaking of communion as well. So if our worship team will come on back up, um, they're, they're going to sing for us, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll come up and do communion. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for your word, thankful for the whole counsel of your will, that you have hidden some things for us, from us. And, and God, uh, the sin in our heart, our desire to control things, we yearn to know what those things are, but Lord, give us contentment to be content with what you have revealed, what you are revealing, and give us the courage and the boldness to be faithful and obedient to what you revealed to us. Lord, help us to be a church, a people that are devoted to prayer, praying earnestly with one another in unity. Lord, help us to be a church that studies the scripture. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, knowing that it never returns void. Lord, help us to be a church that is mutually committed to one another, that that community in the community Bible church would be authentic genuine, led by your spirit, Lord. Help us to submit to one another, mutually submitted to one another in glory of Christ. And then ultimately, God, help us to be a church that follows you, yielded to you, not to our own will. Lord, we're, we're fallible, we're sinful, we can convince ourselves as a church, as people, as families. But ultimately, God, we do want what you want. So as Paul prayed in Colossians, give us spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. guides my heart.